How are you doing out there? In Philippians chapter 1, if you have your Bibles out, get your get yourself to Philippians 1. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 14 this morning. A lot of ground to cover. So um, I'm going to read those verses to you in just a minute, and we're going to hop in. Let's thank God for the word first. Father, we thank you this morning for your holy word that you've given us as a gift. It's a treasure to us. It's a roadmap for us. It's a manual for living. Every bit of it, God breathed and inspired. Holy Spirit, open up the word to us today. Help us to make ready application of its truths and show us the pearls of its wisdom, Lord. Help us to be illuminated by your word that it would provoke change within us that's genuine, produces godliness in us that's tangible, that the world would see the light of Christ in each of us. We pray it in Jesus' name, and the church said, Amen. Amen. Philippians 1, starting in verse 7. Paul, the apostle in chains here, he's chained up, he's being paraded around from one ruler to the next to hear his case, yet he uses it as an opportunity to testify, and while he's in chains under house arrest, he writes letters, epistles to the church, this one to the Philippians, an epistle whose theme is joy. So Paul is modeling for us how to have joy in tough circumstances. And we pick up in verse 7, and Paul says this, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you, all in affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it is become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So a lot in here this morning, Paul sharing his heart with the Philippian church here in this first chapter. And he starts off in verse 7 uh, with an explanation of why they are so important to him. Now, Paul is a guy who's known the grace of God in an incredible way. He went from murdering Christians as a persecutor of the church to the chiefest of apostles who now uh, goes around preaching the gospel and will pen two-thirds of the New Testament. So a huge transformation in him. But he gives an explanation here. Just that it is right for me to think of you all because I have you in my heart. So he's giving an explanation for why these guys are so important to him. And understand, Paul had invested himself in the Philippians. You will love something you've invested yourself in. If you haven't invested yourself in something, you might care for it, you might have empathy for it, but you're not going to love it, you're not going to nurture it, you're not going to lay your life down for it. There's a reason why parents love their children so much. Any parents love their children this morning? Wow, that was weak. Let me try again. Maybe you weren't ready for the question. 
Any parents love their children this morning? Amen. I would give my last breath for both of my boys. And sometimes they wish I would. But, you know, parents love their children. Why? Because they've invested so much in them. Mothers, what you've invested in us just carrying us around for nine months. There's no man that would carry anything around for nine months. But, you know, mothers and fathers invest so much in their children, and they love them. Now, other people don't love your children like you love your children. You know, you think they're cute. They're, they're, oh, they're, look, they're screaming. Isn't that beautiful? No, it's not beautiful. But parents love their children. Why? Because they've invested so much in them. And Paul loves the Philippian church because as a spiritual parent, he too had invested so much in them. He led them to Christ. Many of them individually he led to Christ. He actually planted the church and installed its leadership. He taught them everything they knew about the gospel. He came to them and just poured himself into them. He prayed for them constantly. So yes, Paul loved them, and he gives this explanation for his love because he'd fully invested himself in them. Now, notice he tells them, I have you in my heart. That's the right place to have someone when you love them. Not in your head, not in your mind, not in your intellect, not in your emotions, not in your, not in your wallet. Some of the ladies might. No, it's in your heart. That's where someone belongs that you love. Paul says, I have you in my heart. Now, it's actually a really good thing for us to know what's in our hearts. And you know what? Sometimes we think it's easy. Well, I know what's in my heart. I know what I think. I know what I feel. Our hearts are tricky, and they're deceptive, and they'll trick us. How many are brave enough to admit in church that you've been tricked by your heart, that you've been tricked by your emotions? You meet somebody, and you're like, this person's great. We're going to be best friends Two weeks later, you're trying to move. Or you look at someone and you want to date them and you think, this is the one, this is, this is the, this is the, my, rest of my, this is it. Only in two weeks ago, this is it. Come on. How many of you are thankful that you didn't get what you wanted right away or you just, the impulsiveness or the deceptiveness of your heart? Man, we can be tricked and fooled by our hearts. It's almost embarrassing sometimes when you look back and we thought, oh, this is God, and it wasn't God at all. It was emotion or deception or lust or something, but not God. Paul says, I have you in my heart, and it's good for us to know what's in our hearts. Now, Jesus is the one thing that should dominate our heart. The kingdom of God should dominate our heart. Now, I'm not saying that we can't love other things and other people. So I don't like anyone with Jesus. No, come on. Let's get some balance here today. We can love other things and other people. and We can enjoy life. Come on, anybody enjoy life? Yeah. Once, once upon a time, back when you were young, you saw pictures. You, no, we should enjoy life. But we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't have anything in our hearts above Jesus. Jesus and his kingdom and his will should dominate our hearts. You know, many times we use the illustration of, you know, Jesus sitting on the throne of our hearts. And I get a mental picture of a throne like you would see in one of those movies where you have a king sitting on the throne with a big high back chair and it's all ornate. And Jesus just sitting on the throne of your heart. Now, that's a good mental image because that's exactly what we need to have. But I want to just tell you something about the throne of our heart. It is not a love seat. 
It's not a sectional. Come on, track with me on this. What do we put in our living rooms? We put these huge sectionals that could, you could fit everybody on it. You, you know, you got mom and dad and the kids and the dog and the cat and the neighbors and some guy you don't know, and there's just people everywhere. That's not our hearts this morning. Our hearts are not love seats or sectionals. Well, I love this and I love that and I love some of this and I love cookies and I love ice cream. Listen, there's only one spot, and Jesus has to sit firmly upon the throne of our hearts. Now, Paul was obviously following Jesus, but he also had the Philippians there in his heart because they were a part of the will of God for his life, his mission. And understand, we've got to let Jesus dominate our hearts. Now, how do I know if Jesus has my heart? Well, there's going to be some indicators. The first is this. We're always thinking about him. Whatever you think about all the time dominates your heart. Now, we've got to be honest with yourself. We're always thinking about fun or uh, pleasure or, you know, sports or hobbies. You know, if, uh, it's fall now and the leaves are falling and it's hunting season. It's hard for me not to think about Bambi all the time. <laughs> Come on, Scotty, right? You, he's got the disease too. But it's just all day long, you know, it's like, where is he? What is he doing? What is, you know, but Jesus, you know, we can enjoy life, but we still got to keep Jesus on the throne. He's got to be number one. So what we think about all the time, we should go to bed thinking about Jesus. We should wake up thinking about Jesus. Amen. It seems like the older I get, the more I wake up with a song on my heart. You know, did anyone experience that? I wake up with a song, a worship song. And so, and now, if I wake up singing like, you know, I wake up to Van Halen, something's wrong. You know, something's you know, but I know things are right with me when I, I go to bed thinking about the Lord. I wake up thinking about the Lord. That shows he's got my heart. What else? Well, if the Lord has our heart, we should have the same passions that Jesus had. Jesus had passions that we should have passions for the lost, passions for the, the things of the kingdom, passion for his heavenly father. Amen. Jesus was passionate about pleasing his father to the point where he did only what he saw the father doing. We should have the same passions as Jesus. Not that I get up in the morning, well, I'm going to do what I want to do today. I'm going to accomplish my own agenda. I'm going to spend all my money on me. I'm going to do what makes me happy. His agendas, his passions. Now, listen to me. I understand balance, and we have to have balance, and God has put all kinds of things out there for us to sow our time and energy in, but he's got to be number one. The throne of our heart is a one-seater. It only has room for Jesus. So we, we always think about him. We have the same passions as he has. Uh, we keep his commandments. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? You know, that, that's quite a riveting question, isn't it? Because all of us find us in the position. Jesus says, love one another. How many times are we unloving? We're, we're mad. We're barking at people. We're yelling in traffic. Screaming at the TV. I can't, I can't deal with the news. One liar after another. Liar, liar, liar. I wish liars actually, their pants did burst into fire, right? Just, I, I can't even deal with it anymore. I'm, I'm, what's going on in there? You're, I'm yelling at the TV. But he said to be, you know, those who exude love. And so there again, we have to have his passions. We have to love him and we have to do his will. This proves that he has our heart. Now, 
How do I know if the world has my heart? Well, number one, I'll be self-centered. See, the world is all about self. And we are a self-centered generation. All generations were, but I think in some ways we are more self-centered than any generation that ever was because we have the technology to build our own little kingdoms. We have the technology in the palm of our hand to create almost an alternative world for ourselves with our own news feed, with our own social media. We look at what we want to look at. We see what we want to see. We can adjust this and adjust that. And we create an environment just for ourselves, all about ourselves. We take pictures of ourselves. We post them. They're called selfies. It's, it's just, you know, selfishness is, is when the flesh is so unrestrained and Jesus isn't Lord, all we've got left is to cater to ourselves. So if the world has our heart, we're going to be self-centered. If the world has our heart, we're going to be materialistic. There is so much stuff to acquire out there. Come on, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. There is so much stuff and just so many good products and so much technology and so many creature comforts to, you know, when I look at what my grandfather's generation had now to what we have, when my grandfather died, I think they put all of his belongings in four cardboard boxes. There's a hundred cardboard boxes in my attic. Don't look in my garage. Rooms full of stuff, right? Why? Because we, we can easily become so materialistic. The world has our heart. We're going to want the treasures of the world. We're going to want the trinkets of the world. We're going to want the toys and the distractions of the world. If the world has our heart, uh, we're going to make idols out of things. Now, the person who's worldly will make an idol out of something that's good. You know, God gave us things to enjoy, but we can push them to such an extreme to where we worship them in place of God. Nature's a, br a beautiful thing, amen, but our generation has made an idol out of nature, has made an idol out of the earth, you know, sports are good. I used to watch sports. I used to, you know, love teams and stuff. But, you know, you can take a, a sports team and make an idol out of it to where you, you're, you're not in church because your team is playing. Or you're not in ministry because, you know, you, you're going to miss. Why, why do people make idols out of things? Now I'm saying in balance, it's all good. See, this is about balance. This is not about being some Christian weirdo who only, you know, prays all day and walks around in a robe and plays the harp. And I'm talking about balance, where Jesus is number one, everything falls in place underneath Jesus, and it's all balanced. Out of balance, we take a good thing, and we make an idol out of it. How else do I know if the world has my heart? Because I'm conflicted and I'm miserable. Do you know the most miserable person on the face of the earth is not the worst of sinners? The most miserable person on the face of the earth is a Christian who has one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. Because of that stance they've taken, they're straddling what's good and what's evil, and they're conflicted. And when you're conflicted, you will be miserable. Amen. God wants us not half in, half out. He wants us both feet in, not close to the line, running towards him. Amen. That's where we're going to find peace. That's where we're going to find joy. That's where we're going to be able to smile when the world is imploding all around us, to have peace that passes all understanding. Not because I'm half in and half out. Conflicted and miserable. That's a sign that the world has our heart. 
Now, Paul's affection for the Philippians was, in, was further inflamed. It wasn't enough that he led them to Christ. He planted the church. He taught them everything about the kingdom. He prayed for them constantly. But look, their response to that further inflamed Paul's passion and love for these people. They gave such a beautiful display of loyalty and faithfulness towards him in response to his love that when he was in trouble, they had his back. Look what it says here. Since both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, look, I've loved you guys and I've sown into you. But now that I'm in trouble and I'm in a a dark place in a hard spot, you've been with me every step of the way. The Philippians sent people to help him. They sent things that he needed. They sent physical and financial aid for him. Why? Because in Paul's situation, they were with him and they had his back. And Paul's saying, not only have I loved you, but you loved me. And this further galvanizes our relationship here. You know, since both in my imprisonment and my defense and confirmation of the gospel, what is he saying? You guys have been good friends to me. You know what? Good friends, real friends are with you in the storms of life. Have you ever had fair weather friends that if everything was going good and the money was flowing and the happy times were there, they were right there with you? But the minute it got dark or the minute it got real or the minute there was trouble, they were gone, nowhere to be found. I've walked with people through some horrible storms and I've walked with them and cried with them and been with them. And then when there was things going on in my life, sometimes they were nowhere to be found. Almost like saying it without saying it. I don't have time for your mess. You deal with that yourself, buddy. Wow. I had friends in high school, one-way friends, good time friends, when the sun is shining friends, but then realized that they weren't friends at all. Because when I needed them, they were nowhere to be found. Paul's saying, you guys have been right there with me all the time. Faithful friends, holding up my hands, believing with me, strengthening me when I'm weak and when I'm broken. What a blessing it is. Nothing bonds individuals together more than when they face hardships together. Listen to what I'm saying. Nothing bonds individuals together more than when they face hardships together. That's where the unbreakable bonds of brotherhood are forged, in the midst of trial, in the furnace of affliction, in the midst of crisis. Soldiers who fought together in combat have this unbreakable bond, and they show the phenomenon of how they're galvanized together as as brothers. There's even been shows written like Band of Brothers that, you know, these guys who fought and bled and died together, they're connected in a way that's closer than even family, closer than even blood. Joe Galloway, a decorated Vietnam War correspondent, made this observation about the soldiers who fought in Vietnam. He said, they went to war because their country ordered them to, but in the end, they did not fight for their country or their flag. They fought for each other. The soldiers who fight and battle together, they don't fight for an ideal or a flag or, or, or even the nation. They fight for the man on the right and the man on the left. A quote that is attributed to the special forces community says this, no bullet, no shell, no, nor demon in hell will break this bond called brothers. Listen to that. No bullet, no shell, no demon in hell will break this bond we call brothers. Now, men, if you, if you didn't get goosebumps, you need to start your testosterone replacement therapy immediately. 
Because I'm telling you what, that should spark so if you got anything left in you, I'm telling you, how much more as Christians should we be bonded together by the blood of Jesus Christ, the family of God, part of the fellowship of the unashamed, amen, that, that we have each other, we're with each other, we support each other. We laugh with each other. We cry with each other. We break bread together. We go through the good times and the dark times together. Mm, that's what Paul is saying here. You guys, you guys have had my back. You've been real friends. God alone knows that what we say, if it's genuine or if it's just lip service. How many understand people sometimes just tell you what you want to hear? And, you know, sometimes when we're hurting and we just need to hear some encouragement, even when we're getting it from someone who's just telling us what we want to hear, it still doesn't, I'm like, you're not sincere with that. But God knows if we're being sincere, if we're being genuine, or if we're just giving lip service. And Paul alludes to that in verse 8. He says, for God is my witness. Look what he says. God knows how greatly I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. He's like, guys, I'm not just telling you what you want to hear. I'm not just saying these flowery things to make my letter nice and rosy and readable. No, I'm really feeling this with every fiber of my being in the core of my gut. I love you guys. I yearn for you guys. I'm praying for you guys. And God is my witness that what I'm saying is genuine and it's not lip service. Verse 9 continues here, and I'm, I'm moving through. We have a lot of ground to cover here, so track with me in the text as we're reading through. Paul says, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may prove the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So verse 9 and 10 are powerful as we go through them here. God knows if we're being genuine. And Paul says, I'm being genuine. God's my witness. But what he says here in verse 9 <coughs> into 10 amounts to his heartfelt prayer for the Philippian church. And the things he highlights there, the three things that he highlights are really uh, important for the contemporary church. It's not only for the Philippians, but it's for us. Say this, it's for me. What Paul's saying is for me and it's for you. And look what he, he says here in the 90s. He's talking about, I, first of all, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Out of the three things that we need in the contemporary church, number one is love. We need our love to increase. Now, strangely, in some situations, it starts off in love and it decreases into something that's less than love. Anyone ever seen relationships disintegrate or implode? A sad thing. But here, we, we need our love to increase. And that's what Paul is praying for the church here. You know, man's love fades and it withers. And sometimes the love of men just quits. Ever, ever seen just somebody quit on a, on a relationship, on a situation, on a call, on a marriage? Just quit. I don't feel it anymore. There's no love anymore. I don't, I don't love you anymore. What a sad situation. God loves never fades, never withers, never quits. God's love is a constant. And as Christians, our love should mirror that. Our love should be on the increase for Jesus, for his body, and for the lost. Our love should be increasing. Amen. Some of you too don't even have enough love to clap for that. You just stop writing and clap your hands and say, amen. My love is increasing. Amen. I... I have good eyesight. I can see you're drawing pictures in there anyway. You're not taking notes. 
But here, here people say, well, you know, I've been saved a long time, so, you know, I don't, I don't have much love or joy or passion anymore. A lot of people like that. Well, you don't know how long I've been saved, you know. I'm kind of fizzling out here. The Bible doesn't teach that we should fizzle out or become lukewarm, but that we should increase. We should go from mountaintop to mountaintop, higher and higher, amen, more in love. My wife and I have been married for 30 years. I can honestly say, God is my witness, that I love her more than when I just met her. After 30 years. You say, well, how is that possible? I don't know. I remember the first time I saw her from across the campus at Bible school, and the Holy Spirit told me that's going to be your wife. Now, people always say stuff like that, and I used to hear them saying, I'm like, you're crazy, but it happens. And, and she saw me and ran the other way, praise God. But I, I was fast back then, and I, I caught up with her. But our love has increased, and the mileage that we've had, those 30 years together, just, you know, it makes it sweeter. So that, that's God's model there. Well, other people get, you know, they get sick and tired of each other, and they stop trying, and, they don't, and their, their love just falls apart. No, God wants our love to increase for Jesus, for the body of Christ, and for the lost. Do we care for the lost? Do we care that this world is perishing all around us? God help us today. Let our love increase. So Paul prays that, that your love may abound. Then he continues here, and uh, he, he wants them to, you know, understand that, yeah, not only may your love abound, but that you would have the godly application of knowledge. Now, this is important here, that your love may abound still more and more in the knowledge, say knowledge, and all discernment. We're going to cover that, but let's look at knowledge. We need our godly application of knowledge to increase. And I'll, I'll explain to you what that means. Now, our generation doesn't need more knowledge. Come on, look at me like you're smart. We don't need more knowledge. We don't need more facts. We don't need more figures. We don't need more information. We don't need more philosophies. In fact, this generation has all the knowledge of man within the, the palm of their hand that they can get any time. Remember back in the day where if you didn't know something, you had to hope that your mother bought the, the uh, encyclopedia set from the guy who came to the door so that you could look it up? Remember, if you wanted to know something about something, you had to look up and hope they had covered that topic. Now, anything you want to know, it's in the palm of your hand. My wife was sitting around, how old do you think that actor is? Well, let's not wonder. Google it. Get your, I say, get your Googleizer out. And she's like, shh, 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 shh. boom. And right away we know how old he is, how much he weighs. Everything, it's all out there. So we don't need more knowledge. We don't need more information. What we need is the proper application of knowledge, and that's wisdom. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. There are a lot of people who know a lot of things and they have no wisdom. Come on, you know who I'm talking about. They're smart. They got degrees and they got titles and they can't even, they can't even conduct a conversation. They have no social graces, no bedside manner, no couth, no tact. Because knowledge alone is insufficient. We need wisdom and that comes from God. And wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. So we can take all this knowledge and apply it in a way that pleases God and lines up with his truth. So Paul prays for them that their love would increase and that they would have that knowledge that gives itself to wisdom 
And then he prays for them. The third thing is that they would have discernment. And I want you to see this. It's interesting the way discernment is mentioned here. I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge. Listen, and all, say all, all discernment. Now, that's an interesting little caveat there, and I'll tell you why. Because some people have discernment in some areas, and they're brilliant. And then in other areas, they're dumb as a box of rocks. And, and listen, I'm just being honest, right? Have you ever met people like that? They're so smart about this stuff. And in this area, they're, I mean, no wisdom at all. So if, if we have discernment in some areas and not others, we're going to be deceived in the areas we don't have discernment. So that's why the word says we have to have all discernment. It's not that we just get a few things right. We got to get it all right. You say, Pastor Rick, how is that possible? It's not possible without the Holy Spirit. But with the Holy Spirit, it is possible. Because the Holy Spirit, Michael, was given to us so that he could lead us into all truth. Amen. Not just some truth. Not just the truth here and there. Not just an accidental truth. But all truth. That we would see with the eyes of God and have the understanding of the mind of God. That we would be able to discern the times by the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Ghost this morning. Amen. We need him to lead us into all truth. That we would have all discernment. It's amazing how so much of the body of Christ doesn't have the right worldview. Doesn't have the right view on sexuality, on abortion, on immorality. We're fragmented. And, and, it, and it shows why. Because the culture around us is crumbling because the church doesn't have the discernment that it needs to be a light in the darkness. Help us, Lord. That we would have knowledge that is coupled with the wisdom of God, the proper application of all the facts, that we would have all discernment, not being partly deceived, but having the eyes of our understanding enlightened, that we could see the truth according to God's word, that our love would be increasing. Mm. Verse 10 and 11 list these fruits, love, knowledge, and discernment, uh, and it's just showing us that, you know, we can have these things in our life as, as a matter of prayer, as a matter of the Holy Spirit, but that they would be the fruit of having these things. Listen to 10 and 11 here. It says that you may approve the things that are excellent. Did you hear that? So Christians being able to discern the times. It's quiet now. Oh, I'm for this, I'm for that, I'm vote for this one, I'm vote for this one. Do we know God's heart for the issues that face the world today? Look what it says here, that we would be able, what, to discern, that we would have this knowledge, uh, to, that we may approve of the things that are excellent, not marginal, not wicked, not ungodly, but that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Wow. That's the fruit of the things Paul's praying for in the Philippians church. Love, knowledge, and discernment that we would may approve the, the right things and, and, and be approving of what delights the heart of God, that we would be sincere and blameless and filled with the fruits of righteousness. It's just about living right and being right and walking right so that the goodness of God just flows over us like a tidal wave, Amen. To the glory and praise of God that the gospel is preached. Wow. You know, there's something that happens in us 
when we are right with God, we're on the same page as God, when we're doing what is on the heart of God, man, the blessing that flows. Yes, the enemy will resist us, but the blessing of God will overtake the attack of the enemy. When the enemy comes in like a flood, God will raise up a standard, amen? Amen. So what a beautiful prayer for them that they would have that love and the knowledge and the discernment. We need it too, amen? So God, do, do it in us. Now, verses 12 and 13 show Paul's attitude towards the situation he's going through. Now, I've mentioned before, attitude is everything. How many will be honest enough to say you went through a, a situation in life where you did not handle it correctly? Here, let me raise both hands. <laughs> yeah, usually by the third time, I'll get it, you know. It's like, oh, yeah, now I remember this. Yeah, let me not get mad at God. Let me just get on my knees. No, yeah, that's right. I should pray and fast. I shouldn't complain and complain. No, uh, so... We're a little slow, but the truth is that, you know, Paul has this view of his hardship, and it's mature, and it's seasoned with grace. Listen to how, uh, you know, he just views this, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, did you hear that? Anybody have things happen to them? Life ever happened to you? It happened on you? Amen. He said, I want you to know that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, here's Paul saying, I'm going through all this garbage. It's unjust. I'm in chains. I've lost my liberty. I, I'm on my way to be martyred. They're going to eventually kill me. But you know what? I've got joy in this situation because I know I'm in the perfect will of God. But you know, here I am going through all this stuff, and my attitude isn't, this isn't unfair, this is unjust, they don't have any right to do this, I want a better lawyer. His attitude is like, you know what, this garbage that's going on in me is actually furthering the gospel. What a mature attitude that we would see the things of God and the kingdom of God and, and, and the, the mission of uh, bringing the, the gospel and the love of God to the lost would be even greater in importance than what happens to me. Wow. That's a mature attitude. Because sometimes you and I have to go through stuff in life, but on the other end of it, we're more of an example. We're more of a light to people. You know, some of the things that I've suffered and you've suffered have given us just great compassion for people. There's been times where I've been so hurt and so broken by situations and people that all I could do was weep before God for days. And on the other side of that, brokenness came a compassion for others that I could have never had any other way. So it's maturity for us to say, yeah, I'm going through a lot of stuff, but I'm going to be, I'm going to go through it and God's grace is going to be enough and I'm going to be able to help others that go through it, amen? Now, the self-centered person would never agree to that. No, I don't want to suffer anything the heck with you. You figure it out for yourself. But Paul's not that self-centered person. He's got Jesus on the throne of his heart. It's the kingdom above Paul. And he says, yeah, I'm suffering, but this is working out great for the gospel. What a wonderful attitude. In verse 13, he basically tells about the Roman guard, the jailers. He had these Roman Praetorian guards that were around him, escorting him everywhere. Big, tough, battle-hardened soldiers. And they were all around him. He's basically saying, I'm impacting them with the gospel. And everybody I go in front of, I share the gospel. And whether it's this leader or Herod or this guy, I'm sharing the gospel. And this is working out great for the gospel, me being in chains. Wow. 
So there he is in this bad situation, letting his light shine, and it's having an effect. Now, I, w- I want to tell you something. If you want to know how to give the devil a headache, an ulcer, and anxiety all in the same day, whatever life throws at you, maintain your joy and shine your light. Maintain your joy and shine your light. You see, when the enemy throws something at us and it works and we fall apart and we cry and we blame God and we get mad and we say it's unfair, guess what? The devil's like, whoa, that was great. Let's do it again tomorrow, right? But when he throws everything he's got and it's unjust and it's wrong and you didn't deserve it and maybe, you know, like Job, what he went through, the devil said to God, if you take the protection off of Job, I'll mess him up so bad, he'll curse you to your face. God said, you got you to bet, buddy. Why don't you go for it? Job never cursed God, never turned his back on God. Even his own wife said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? His friends said to him, you know, you must have done something wrong, buddy. Look at this. God doesn't punish good people like this. And Job maintained his integrity and he never cursed God and God won that bet that day so whatever you're going through don't get mad at God don't blame God don't shake your fist at heaven just have a mature attitude and let your light shine it's what Paul did. So wherever we are on a job, in a hospital bed, in a jail cell, in success or in poverty, in positions of prominence or obscurity, we should let our light shine. I remember, you know, just people, Christians diagnosed with cancer, being in the hospital, and they're there getting treatment, and they're being a light in that place. And they're witnessing to doctors and nurses, and they're praying for other patients. Just amazing. And you know what, they, they come out and say, well, you, how was, they don't want to say, oh, how my treatment? No, I got to witness to this person. I got to share with this doctor, and I got a little breakthrough here, and I encouraged it. That's the way we're supposed to be, no matter where we end up. I shared a story in first service. There was one time someone, you know, had me served to appear in court to testify about something. And somebody knocked at our door late at night, bang, 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 bang. Are you Rick Leonardo? You're served. And so, you know, I shot him and buried No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> you're served. So I, <laughs> I showed up in court, and um, I showed up in court, and I was, you know, there's part of me, the guy's banging on my door. Look, buddy, they, he, uh, I'm serving Pastor Rick. He expected, you know, some little guy come to the door. I come to the door, bang, you're banging on my door. What are you doing here? You know, so he serves me. I show up. The, the, the lawyer for the opposing team is grilling me, talking to me something, and, and, and I'm listening. All of a sudden, right in front of me, she breaks down into tears, the lawyer. She's like coming apart because this trial was so ugly. So the lady who's supposed to be grilling me breaks down in tears. So I hug her and dry her tears and pray for her. And she looks at me, and she's like, no more questions. You know, so there's an opportunity. You say, well, I could have been mad. I could have had a bad attitude. I could have, you know, all of these responses. But just took the opportunity to love an adversary, to, to hug someone, to tell them it's going to be okay. Because sometimes we don't realize what people go through on a daily basis. But we can always let our light shine if we're mature enough to look past the me part of the equation. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about Paul. It was about advancing the love of God and the kingdom and extending grace. Grace that dries tears. Grace that gives hope. Grace that shows the love of God. Verse 14 is so incredible here because I see this as the most important aspect of this 
text for the church. It says, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So there's another response of Paul's maturity. He's saying, I'm in chains, but you know what? It's good because the gospel's being furthered and the people of God are being encouraged. Why? Because they're seeing me locked up. They're seeing me at a loss of liberty and they're watching me in that condition shine my light and preach the gospel and, and have an effect on others. So that the Christians are going, oh, we were afraid of getting locked up. We were afraid of losing our liberty. But look, it's not so bad. Paul is still happy. He still has joy. He's still doing kingdom things and making progress in that state. See, when you and I maintain our witness, maintain our light, and, and, and stop thinking just about ourselves, we're going to inspire others around us to have faith and hope and trust in the Lord. Amen. Anger and complaining and blaming never do any of that. But for us to just shine, wherever you are, just shine. Well, I don't belong here. It's not fair. It's unjust. Shine anyway, amen? If the enemy throws his best at you, just continue to love God and do what he's called you to do and have joy. So have joy as Paul had joy. And have joy today, investing yourself fully in Jesus. Let him have the one-seater. Let him sit on the throne of your heart. Have joy today and be thankful for the people of God in your life who really love you and have your back and are with you. Have joy today and walk in greater levels of love and wisdom and discernment. Have joy today and let your light shine everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, let your light shine. Let's bow our heads today. Father, we thank you for this example this man called Paul, we realize he's just a man just like all of us, subject to the same disappointments and passions and attitudes, but yet you did such incredible things with him because he chose to do the godly thing instead of the fleshly thing. Father, we don't want this world to have our hearts. We don't want to make idols of things. We don't want to be materialistic. We don't want to be self-centered. We want to be kingdom people. We want Jesus to have our heart 100% to be led by the Holy Spirit, to have all discernment by being led into all truth. So lead us and guide us and let our light shine wherever we are. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Give him praise this morning. Amen. Praise God.